0: And for the rest of us in here, uh, I know I sound a little funny this morning, I'm recovering from a little coronavirus, it's not the novel kind, it's just a good old-fashioned, phlegm-producing, snot-slaying, Kleenex-abusing, cold, um, but it does make me sound as if I'm speaking in a cave, um, so I apologize for that, but I really, really wanted to present this uh, this sermon this morning um, it's the last Sunday before Christmas, and isn 't it amazing how somehow Christmas went from six months away to now six sleeps away? It just seems like it 's just gone so quickly it 's absolutely true that time is relative, and the older you get, the more relativer it seems to become. Um, so here we are. but we are happy to be here, uh, happy that we are here together we 're continuing in our kind of abbreviated Adventy Christmas series, uh, where this year we 're not really focusing on the birth narrative so much. Um, as we're considering the offices, the roles that Jesus came to fulfill. So we're looking at not just the fact that Jesus was born, but, but why and, and what that means for us. Uh, and I think this works as both a, a Christmas series, but it also serves as kind of a decent lead-in for us to where we're going next, which is the book of Revelation, where some of these themes continue forward as well. Um, And we just were coming out of Paul's prison epistles, which served as a nice lead-in for this. You may remember way back in our uh, study of the book of Colossians, we called that series The Supremacy of Christ. Early in that letter, Paul reminded us that we were once alienated. We were hostile towards God. We did evil deeds. We were separated from God. But then through the birth, life, death, death, and resurrection of Christ, we've been delivered from darkness to light, he said. We've been redeemed and forgiven of our sins. And then Paul reminded us that Jesus is the image of God. In him, the fullness of God dwells. So when Jesus was born, we could rightly say, Emmanuel, he is God with us. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of all that is. In short, we saw that Christ is supreme. He's far above all other men and far above all other gods. So the birth story is amazing, but it's it's a small amazing part of an incredible larger story. So let's pray before we kick into the rest of it here. <clears throat> Lord, we're grateful for the chance to be here together this morning, and um, we know that these these uh, this time of year in particular can be can be stressful, it can be um, anxiety producing. But we're grateful for those who have gathered here together this morning in your name, Lord. We know there are some who have been. Uh, suffering with, with illness and, and with death even. Um, Lord, we pray for your comfort and for your, for your peace for all of those who are struggling through this holiday season for whatever the reason. But we are grateful to gather here this morning to to hear more about you for your mission, your purpose in life, um, and for ultimately what that means for us. So please help us approach with open ears and open hearts and open minds this morning to hear the word that you have for us and how it might apply to us personally. We thank you for your great love, the foundation of this great story. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we went through Colossians, we saw that the idea of Christ's supremacy actually becomes even clearer when that it gets uh, considered in perspective with the rest of what we know about Jesus from throughout the Scripture. Jesus is often referred to as prophet and priest and and ultimately king, as we're going to see here this morning. Now, ordinarily, prophet, priest, and king, those were three different roles, three different offices um, or positions, and there was no overlap. Uh, A priest did not function as a prophet or a king, and a king did not try to perform the duties of a priest or prophet, except for maybe Saul that one time, and if you remember that story, it did not go well when he tried to cross the lines. So each office has its own qualifications or its own standards and their own limitations of office. They're very distinct, separate roles. They were God-ordained and God-appointed roles. And although they had different functions, they all served in their own way as intermediaries between God and man. They were mediators. I'll describe them this way, that the, the role of the prophet was primarily concerned with revelation. That might include some foretelling of future events, but more often than not, the job was to reveal or share the truth of God's word. Whether it is easy to hear or hard to hear, their job was to share the truth of God's word. The role of the priest was to help bring about reconciliation between man and God. Uh, to offer up sacrifices to God on behalf of man, but in the custom and manner established by the Lord. So the priest helped to restore or reconcile man's relationship with God. And then the role of the king was to rescue and rule. To rescue people, more often than not, it seems, from the consequences of their own bad decisions. Um, but sometimes kings weren't all that great either. But their job was to lead and, and, and to model obedience to God's word, to rule according to godly principles. Because scripture tells us that God appoints kings and rulers. So they were to follow what God asked them to do, to function in that regard. That was, the, that was at least the intent of the king. <clears throat> And then Al described how how Jesus perfectly filled the roles of both prophet and priest. And in the process of our salvation, he has made us, he's equipped us, he's called us to be prophets and priests like him. So we are to share the truth of God's word with the unbelievers around us. We are called to worship and to sacrifice. In fact, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice on behalf of our Savior. And so this week we're going to look at that third office, Uh, Or that role that Jesus perfected, and that was that of a king. Now, when we tend to think of a king, uh, our mind naturally goes to something like this uh, thoughts of extravagant royalty, excessive wealth, privilege, power, world leaders, perhaps. Rarely is our first thought of royalty anything like this Jesus born lowly in a manger or Jesus dying pitiably on a cross. That's just not what we think of when we think of kings. But from a Christian perspective, hopefully we we think, we believe, we know that Jesus is the ultimate and eternal king. And in one of history's great ironies, this pitiable Jesus that was hanging on a cross, dying the death of the lowliest criminal, treated by the world at large as a criminal, he had a sign above him. On this cross. Literally designating him as king of the Jews. It was meant to be ironic. He was being mocked as a king. By all those who chose to kill him. All those who were involved. But not everyone mocked. Just prior to the cross. Jesus was called in to meet with Pilate. And and Pilate seemed almost unsure as to what to make of this Jesus. You see in Matthew 27, verse 11, that Jesus stood before the governor, Pilate, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. Pilate had to ask him, are you the king of the Jews? It's impossible to determine his tone or his level of sincerity from what we read in this text. But based on the entire exchange, Pilate seems seems unclear. He's not quite sure what to do with this situation. And so Jesus answers, you have said so. And that didn't help Pilate at all. What kind of answer is that? Later, as the people were calling for the death of Jesus, Pilate asked them the question, what evil has he done? Pilate seems to have had some reasonable doubt as to the guilt of Jesus, having broken any laws, or any laws that mattered to Rome anyway, He didn't care what was happening among the Jews. What had Jesus done against Rome? But if Jesus claimed to be king, well, that was a challenge to the emperor, and that had to be dealt with. So ultimately, Pilate gave the people what they wanted. Jesus was hung on a cross, and he had a sign nailed above him on the cross. Now, rather than mocking, I would argue that most of us here this morning believe that Jesus was and is the great prophet, the great priest, and the great king. And we believe it not because it makes us feel good or it helps us sleep better at night believing it or believing in something anyway, but we believe it because we've come to understand that there's good evidence for this in Scripture. We've seen evidence maybe of the power of King Jesus in our own lives. But one of the more interesting aspects about King Jesus, as I was going through this study, one of the more interesting things about this, I think, is, at least as far as the records show, this is true among all four Gospels, we never read the words about Jesus saying, I am your king. Even when Pilate asked him, "So, so you're a king? Jesus said, well, you say I'm a king. Jesus never said it. He didn't have to say it. His life and his lifestyle and his, his actions and his teachings all confirmed it, and the message was clear, even from before his birth. In Matthew 2, 2, we read about the wise men, the, the, the kingmakers of the day, traveling from the east. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Where's this one who's been born king of the Jews? They seem to know. They were told. So they go to find him and they ask the question and Herod heard about it and he was not pleased. A rival to the king, his paranoia kicked in and and we know that led to the slaughter of many innocent babies because he was trying to prevent the birth of this baby, this king. So from birth, from before birth even, before Jesus is even able to speak, from that time until his death on the cross, a pattern began to be established that pointed to Jesus as a prophet, as a priest, and as a king. In Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, we read about Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist. And it says, "...the Spirit immediately came upon Jesus, and then it drove him into the desert, into the wilderness, where he endured 40 days of temptation." from Satan himself. This was a trial by fire. Now we sometimes like to think about this as, well, you know, I mean, Jesus was God after all. Could he really have been all that tempted? Not like we are. But Jesus has got the preeminent tempter of all time. The great tempter. Working at him for 40 days and 40 nights. And and, and the text says that angels were having to minister to him during this time. He was tested, this was no cakewalk This was the full on duel Between Jesus and Satan, between good and evil And Jesus prevailed And then in Mark 1, just a couple of verses later In fact it's the very next verse after that section We read Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee Proclaiming the gospel of God and saying The time is fulfilled And the kingdom of God is at hand Repent and believe in the gospel So Jesus has just passed this test against Satan, he's rejected every possible temptation coming from the the master tempter himself, and he comes out and announces, only after having defeated Satan in the desert, he, he announces, after having won his first battle, if you will, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he stops just short of saying, and I am your king. But his pronouncement suggests, the kingdom is here, the kingdom is here because I am here. Now this is perhaps understated. But it has all the earmarks of the inauguration of a king. He's just had this public ceremony, this baptism. He was spiritually ordained, as it were. The Spirit of God has descended on him, accompanied by a voice from heaven. Jesus has just won this dramatic spiritual battle. He's returned as a conquering hero. And then he says, publicly, for the first time, the time is fulfilled And the kingdom of God is at hand. He says everything but, and I am your king. Now before we go on, I think it's important to lay some context here for this. Um, So let's think back, way back to ancient Israel. Way back, and there was a time where Israel began to beg for a king. Now, they had a covenant in place with God himself, and the covenant said that Israel was going to be the people of God and, God, and God would be their God. He would be their leader. He would be their ruler. They didn't need no stinking king. They had this personal covenant with God himself. But over time, they became disillusioned. And not because God had let them down, but because they had let God down over and over and over. They had strayed from the covenant repeatedly. Their focus over time had shifted. They began to covet what they saw from the other nations and the other peoples, and they wanted to be more like regular folk who had a king. They didn't have a covenant with God, but they had a king. So the people thought, well, that's what we need. We're not told. Perhaps they thought, you know, we keep getting in trouble with God. We keep getting in trouble over and over. We've spent 40 years in time out in the desert. We keep straying away from the covenant. Perhaps if we had a king, you know, if we had some physical form that we could look to, if we had a a representative of God standing in front of us, someone to rescue us, someone to rule us, someone to help guide us and lead us. Yeah, you know, we're not the problem. It's that we don't have a king. That's the problem. And in 1 Samuel, we're told they began to ask. They began to beg for a king. So they could be like everybody else. And, you know, so they could be more righteous. Samuel tried to warn them. This is not going to go the way you think it's going to go. Perhaps you remember reading in 1 Samuel. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. And he gives them this, this list of ways that the king is going to disappoint them, he said he's going to take your sons and make them serve in the military. He's going to draft your sons. He's going to take your daughters and make them work for, for in his behalf whatever whatever his interests are. He's going to take the best of your crops. He's going to make you slaves essentially. And someday, he told them, someday you're going to cry out because of the king you have demanded. And the people said, "But we want a king anyway." Now, if you've done your reading through the Bible in a year series a time or two, you've likely read through First and Second Kings. You read through the first first and second Samuel and you read through first and second Kings. And Samuel was right. You know it did not go well. Here's a just a quick overview. <laughs> kings of Judah on the left, kings of Israel on the right. A total of thirty-nine kings, eight of them good. There's a failure rate of eighty percent. It did not go well. And as bad as all of this was, it continued to kind of set this pattern for Israel that they came to expect a king. They wanted a king who would solve all of their problems as they defined them. Problems as they saw them. A king who would conquer their enemies. A king who would fight their battles. A king who would solve all of their social ills. A king who would create this magical land where children and chickens and unicorns all arranged freely, where everybody would just get along and live happily ever after if they just could get the right king. So now we flash forward back to the time of Jesus. Even though Jesus was the king that had been promised, and even though he said the kingdom is at hand, he was not the king they were expecting. He was not the king they were hoping for. His concern was not primarily political or social. His concern for them was was personal and spiritual. His goal was to rule, certainly, but his goal was also to rescue them from their sin. That was the true enemy, from God's perspective, for his people. So he, he was trying to bring spiritual restoration between the people and their God. And he did everything but beat them around the head and shoulders to make this clear to them that he was the king they should be seeking. In Luke 17, Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He says, It's not coming in the ways you think it will. I mean, if you're really interested in the kingdom of God, it's not coming in ways that can be observed. It's not going to live up to your expectations. Here's a pretty big hint, people. Your expectations are all wrong. You're looking for the wrong things. In fact, he says, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In other words, he seems to be saying, here I am. I'm literally standing in your midst. And they didn't get it. They couldn't, they couldn't connect those dots that, that were laid out pretty plainly in front of them. But they, they couldn't get over their own expectations as to what a king and a messiah would be, what he would do, what he would look like, how he would act. And of course, this is just one of many run-ins that Jesus had with the Pharisees, and he routinely made comments like these. Just a few chapters earlier in Luke, in, in Luke chapter 11, there's a story about Jesus casting a demon out of a man who was mute. The demon left, and the man was able to speak for the first time, and people were amazed. And so some of the people began to accuse him of having received this power over demons from Satan himself. While others continue to say, that's pretty good, Jesus, but what else you got? Can you give us some more signs from heaven? They still weren't convinced for whatever reason. But Jesus knew their hearts and minds. He says that he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus just didn't drop subtle hints as to his kingdom authority. He wasn't laying out this trail of spiritual breadcrumbs for people to follow. He's not establishing a secret gospel code or another Jesus conspiracy theory. And If you just send $42 to this big-haired evangelist, he'll crack it for you. It's right here in Jesus' own words. The kingdom of God has come upon you. We just saw in the previous story, he said the kingdom is in your midst. The kingdom is here, which strongly infers that Jesus is the king. And yet many remained unconvinced. Many were unwilling to believe. And the Pharisees and the doubters and the Sadducees and the Jewish leaders they all had positions, they all had status, they all had things to lose if Jesus was the king. And and they became increasingly agitated and worried by his responses. And I'm not even sure it was necessarily that they didn't understand what Jesus was saying, but they didn't like that it was Jesus who was saying it. He wasn't one of them. He was an outsider. He still kind of smelled of sawdust, some some jerkwater town called Nazareth. I mean, he hasn't studied with us. We're, We're the spiritual elites. He has no bona fides. Or as we would say, he ain't bona fide. He can't be the one. He doesn't tick any of our kingly boxes. And they refused to believe. They made the conscious decision to ignore the evidence. None of which derailed Jesus. And Luke 8 uh, Luke summarizes the ministry of Jesus by saying that Jesus was proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Proclaiming and bringing the good news. And regardless of how the people responded, Jesus went about proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom. He wasn't just saying, boy, there's this good news coming, but he presented himself as the kingdom of God. And he continued to provide proofs along the way. In Luke chapter 10, you you probably remember the story. He sent out 72 of his disciples in in groups of two. This is is the the part where he sends them out by saying, pardon me, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So he prepares them, and he sends them out, and he says, now don't take anything. Don't take your your knapsacks. Don't take any money. Don't take any sandals even. You just go on this mission that I'm sending you on and, and go to the places I'm going to send you. When the town receives you, heal the sick. And say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. Do you notice a shift there? Not the kingdom is in your midst. Not the kingdom has come, but the kingdom has come near. So when Jesus is physically present, he says, The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is in your midst. Whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you receive it or not, your king is here. But when he's not, physically present. He has empowered the disciples to heal the sick and to proclaim truth on his behalf. They say the kingdom of God has come near. They're not the king, but they're doing the bidding of the king. They're building his kingdom. And in spite of all these miracles and in spite of all the, the healings and, and provision of food and uh, extraordinary wisdom that confounded the religious leaders and confused the governmental leaders, people still struggled with accepting Jesus as the promised and foretold king. He, he wasn't addressing their political situation. That's what they'd come to expect. Jesus was here. If he's the king, why is Rome still in power? Why is the nation of Israel still under Roman control? The king is supposed to address that. That's what they'd been taught. That's what they'd been told. So interestingly, at some point, Jesus is pressed on this very issue. Right When when, when these dueling factions tried to corner Jesus into taking a political position, they approached him and said, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they thought, aha, we've got him. This is going to settle it. This is going to confirm for us one way or the other whether he's the the liberator king that we've come to expect or whether he's some fraud, some charlatan. And how did Jesus answer? He said, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And Mark says their response was they marveled at him. They thought they had him. Curses foiled again. Again. We had to put in our tight little box, and he got out of the box. He didn't respond as they expected, and they marveled at him. And I suspect that at every one of these encounters, the, the healings and the, the multiplication of fishes and the casting out demons, every run-in with, with these religious and civil leaders, every one of these encounters, there were some who began to question, who is this guy? Could he be the king? Could he be the one we've been told to expect? I mean, he, he has this righteous zeal of King David, who was, after all, a man after God's own heart. And the Lord did promise David that his house and his kingdom would endure forever, that his throne would be established forever, and this guy comes from the line of David. It's something to ponder. You know, and this, this humble carpenter from Nazareth seems to have the wisdom of King Solomon. How do you explain that? He confounds the religious leaders. He, he confuses the civil leaders. They can't stump him on, on taxes or marriage or the law or anything. And he had all these people clamoring to hear him speak, to hear him teach. Questions were being asked, and, and folks were having these hushed conversations about Jesus. There's no doubt he was winning some hearts, convincing some minds that he was the anointed one. He was the promised Messiah. He may well be the long-prophesied king. And in one of the more telling, and as I've come to think about it, one of the more important stories about Jesus' ministry, John 6 says that after Jesus fed the 5,000, people saw this as a significant sign. This, this is amazing. And many people said, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who's come to the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Perceiving that they were about to force him to become their king. The king they thought they wanted. The king that could defeat poverty. He just fed all these people. The king that could defeat classism and and racism and foreign rule. The, The king who would restore Israel to its rightful place of prominence. This is the king they wanted. This is the kingdom they were prepared to force on him. But the king they wanted was not the king they truly needed. And knowing where this was headed, Jesus withdrew. He wasn't going to be distracted from his mission. He was going to be a king, but it was going to be on his terms and not theirs. And then, of course, there's some time later, John 12 records that Jesus enters Jerusalem astride a donkey. There's a regal picture for you, right? The king riding in on a donkey. That's about as unregal as you can get. And yet, the people reacted as though this king was coming. Most of the crowd laid their cloaks in the road, and, and some cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. John goes on to say that Some of the crowd, they'd been with Jesus since they saw him bring Lazarus back from the dead. They had seen a series of miracles from Jesus, and they continued to bear witness about what Jesus had done. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So clearly, there's a group of people who've made this leap to Jesus as prophet. And after seeing miracles and, and, and hearing his level of wisdom and witnessing this royal welcome into Jerusalem, they were even more inclined to believe that not only was he a prophet, but he may be the king that they had longed for. And many believed. But many others, most others, said, who is this? And when they heard, this is Jesus of Nazareth, they went, oh, that guy, whatever. He can't be the king we're looking for. It can't be him. We're still answering to Rome. He hasn't done a thing about that. He can't be the guy. He's not who we're expecting. But Jesus would not be moved from his mission. Unlike many or most other modern politicians, Jesus was not going to change the mission to meet the expectations of the people. He was trying to get the people to understand and adjust their expectations of their king. And what was his mission? let's go back to the scene with Pilate. When Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? John's gospel records this interaction this way. Pilate enters his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? So this is the first time Pilate asks. Jesus does not deny that he's a king. Instead, he challenges Pilate as to why he's even asking the question. Are you asking me if I'm a king because you think it might be true or because others have told you to ask the question? Others have put you up to it. Slippery old Pilate, he says, am I a Jew? What do I know about what they think, what they teach? But your own people want you dead, I know that. What have you done to make them all so mad, even to the point of death? What have you done to make them so mad? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. So here Jesus says, Am I a king? Well, sadly, I'm not the king they think they want. They want a king in this world. They want a king from this world. My kingdom is not of this world. Trust me. If I wanted to be king now, You and I wouldn't be having this little chat, Pilate. But this is not my kingdom. This is not why I came. This life, these circumstances, not my immediate concern. But again, you notice that Jesus does not deny being a king. Which Pilate picks up on. He says, so you're saying you are a king. And again, Jesus deflects and says, well, you, you say I'm a king, but let me tell you what I mean by this. And in that section that follows, Jesus transforms the meaning of kingdom. He tells us what we should be expecting. It's not about power. It's not about privilege. It's not about landmass or borders or excess or, or about control. It's not about any of the things that we want or expect from a king. Jesus says, my purpose, my mission is to bear witness to the truth. I'm representing the kingdom of God. So my kingdom is not temporal. It's not earthly. He's not interested in staking his claim to a kingdom at that place and at that time because Jesus' kingdom is eternal. It encompasses all places and all times. His mission wasn't political or social. It was spiritual and redemptive. And ultimately we know that Jesus purchased and secured the promise of the true kingdom, And he made it possible for us to join him through the sacrifice of his own blood. His sacrifice makes it possible for us to join him in his kingdom. But first we have to get our expectations in line. And accept his definition of a king. Jesus came as a king to rescue and rule. But he didn't come to rescue us necessarily from what we think of as important. He didn't come to make us rich. I don't care how many times you hear that on TV. Jesus did not come to make us rich. He didn't come to grant our every wish. He didn't come to make our life a veritable rose garden. He came to rescue us from the curse of sin. And he did that by dying for us on the cross. He came to rule. He came to rule as our our benevolent, sacrificial king. And we become his bondservants in response so we can escape the slavery of sin and death. And so we honor him. We worship him as a a good, a holy, and a just king through our obedience and our sacrifice. Not just lip service and say we believe in Jesus and no one would ever be able to tell if we didn't say it out loud. Where we worship Jesus as king, not just among the, the pantheon of other things we say we believe in, things that we worship with our time and our treasure and our talent. As followers of Christ, we've been called to Christ-likeness. So we too have been given this shared prophetic task. We are called to continue to profess the truth of God's word. And we've been remade and reborn into a kingdom of priests where we're called to live sacrificially in service to our God. Those are things that we share with Jesus Christ. But there's only ever one king. And Jesus was not interested in being the king in that time and in that place because he is the king for all time and all places. And for all people. And the day will come when all knees will bow. And all will acknowledge his kingdom. But for some, that day will come too late. Jesus is going to judge us on what we've done, how we have lived. And those who have rejected him as king and rejected his kingdom while here on earth, they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. But for those who believe and receive the, 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 the proper rescue and rule, the proper expectations of King Jesus those who accept him as Lord and Savior, they're going to be ushered into a new heaven and a new earth where God will dwell with man. He will be our God and we will be his people. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. There will be no mourning or crying or pain of any kind. That's a kingdom worth waiting for. That's a kingdom that Exceeds our expectations. And that's the kingdom that's coming as scriptures foretold. So the question remains that we have to ask Have you chosen the right king? The story of Jesus began meekly in a manger, it seemed to have come to something of an ignoble end on a cross. But it rose triumphantly on the third day and eventually leads to a throne where Christ reigns forever. So we celebrate the birth of the Christ child because we know the role that it plays in this story. It's another confirmation point that God is who he said he is. He is He is in control of time and history. It's been confirmed. Jesus is the king and God is with us. Let's pray. Father we are moved, I hope, by the power of this story, by the power of your story, by how these uh, moments uh, in in Jesus life, how these little scenes that play out they they're so easy to look at as kind of individual vignettes of of uh, Jesus wisdom and his his mastery of oratory over the Pharisees and the Sadducees and um, but Lord, I, I hope that we see how this all connects into telling the larger story. That you are the eternal king. And not only are you the king of all time and all place, but you are the king that came to die for us, that came to secure our rescue by shedding your own life, shedding your own blood. And I pray that as we go through this next week and we draw closer to the celebration of Christmas that this just kind of looms large in our mind that we are grateful and we have good reason to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ because of the the milestone that it is in the redemptive story. We just thank you for the, the portrayal of this great love for us and this plan that was put in place from before time began to show your love, your concern, your compassion for us. So we pray as we gather with friends and family and and whoever else we're spending time with uh, this next week throughout these holidays, Lord, that we would not shrink from our purpose of being prophetic and sharing the truth of God's word. That we live priestly lives, that is, sacrificial lives. That in our words and our actions we bring glory and honor to you so that even without saying, I am a Christian, I am a follower of Christ, people will see that there's something different about us. But we also are grateful for your patience when we fail. And we will fail. We thank you for your great love. In Jesus' name, amen.